for the first time in my life, I finally have a financial advisor. And I wouldn't say that I'm bad with money, uh, but if I'm given the option between spending several hours learning about the stock market or spending several hours drawing chocolate sauce on a strawberry in a 3D modeling program, (laughs) I'm going to choose the latter because that is actually what I did yesterday at work. That's funny. And uh, what makes me glad is that there are people who get more enjoyment out of the spending several hours on the stock market, uh, like Max, who is my financial advisor, who has been helping my wife and I uh, come up with like a financial plan. I feel like a big boy for once. And it's fun watching him get so excited when we talk about like mutual funds and interest rates and things that I kind of understand, but not very well. So we had a meeting with him last week and he's explaining to me about like our investment strategy and how uh, the projected markets in an election year mean that like the market's going to get better and I have to blurt out the only thing I know about like market trends. And I asked like, so is that a bull or is that a bear? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I I don't ever remember which one's which. Sure. But I do know that those are mar- marketing stock market terms. Bull, yeah, yeah. Bull's good. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there, there that that was like a really interesting thing that that Max and I were talking about because he knows what it means and he knows he says that he is often reading articles where people will say that like the bulls think this and the bears say that and it's so common heck there's a giant bull statue on wall street that people rub for good luck mm. but he didn't know why they're called a bull and a bear market so my job has been to find this out <laughs> and it turns out the bear came way before the bull but it started with a proverb in the 1700s where the idea was that you shouldn't try to sell a bear skin before you caught the bear. Hmm. And this became very relevant in the year 1720 when the first stock market bubble happened. It was known as the South Sea Scandal. And I don't understand this stuff very well, but my understanding is that there was stock in this trading company that was not as valuable as people were speculating it was. Mm -hmm. Think of any sort of crypto-related problems in the past couple of years and it's basically that but 300 years ago and not with cryptocurrency and with that south sea scandal this was one of the first times in history where this sort of thing happened and people weren't expecting it like how we expect there to be crashes and stuff now so people lost tons of money specifically sir isaac newton he lost the equivalent today of millions of dollars There's some sort of quote about him saying, like, I know how gravity works, but I can't read people's predictions or whatever. Uh, But um, the whole proverb about the bear came around because this was a great example of someone selling the bear skin before they caught the bear. And there was a poet who lost a lot of money from this named Alexander Pope. And he was the one that finally brought the bull into this. So he wrote this poem. It says... Come fill the South Sea goblet full. The gods shall of our stock take care. Europa, pleased, accepts the bull. And Jove, with joy, puts off the bear. Jove actually is a nickname for Jupiter, like the Mm -hmm. god Jupiter. I didn't know that until Mm -hmm. doing this. Uh, But he's basically saying, like, come on, stocks, keep going up. Uh, And then before they eventually crashed. But 
it turns out some people think that he chose the bull just because it rhymes well with full. But other people are saying that apparently bulls and bears used to fight each other for entertainment for people. Like you would put a bull and a bear in a ring in the 1700s and just make them fight to the death. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so whenever you talk to people about, like, why is it a bull and why is it a bear, the thing they always just tell you is it's because the bear uses its claw to swipe down, downward market trends, and the bull thrusts the horns up, going upward trends. Uh, But yeah, it turns out it's a lot more bloodier than it seems. Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it but we're going to tell you about it anyways. I'm Peyton Gessel. And I'm Chris Humphreys. So I have always loved playing video games. You and I have talked about this a lot. And we definitely have different tastes in video games. We've gotten that right. Uh, But growing up, I've always loved playing video games. Uh, Even down to when I was a child, my grandma had a Nintendo entertainment system in the basement i would go down and we play super mario brothers one two three and excite bike and like you know mario golf all that kind of stuff right but for most of my video game career if you will and up until these days it's changed a little bit but for many probably a decade or more i bought call of duty when it came out i played it the whole year and i bought the next call of duty when it came out the next year that's kind of my game it always Mm -hmm. has been i'm not good at it never have been good at it but i've always played that game pretty much exclusively and so sometimes i like to go back and play the games that i was like the best at or that and everyone does this right it's just nostalgia and as you become an adult you want to go back to the things you 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 used to like and so i like going back to the old games every once in a while still to this day and recently i went back and played an old call of duty game black ops one and and it's super fun and and i remember being nostalgic that you open the game and just the opening screen and the the way the menus look and all that it's just like it's nostalgic and i you look through the your classes and all the weapons you use like man i love this one and this one and is that the one with the jfk conspiracy theories yeah yeah there's like a there's like a zombie presidential related thing. Is that what oh, you're talking about? I don't know. I actually oh. didn't play. I just knew that one of the black ops had like presidential conspiracy theories or it's maybe probably, all of them. It's Maybe it's all of them. I don't know. See, and that's the thing. I, I was never very, uh, I just wanted to play the multiplayer with my friends. I never got that into it. Right. Sure. So you might be right. That's, and that's possible because like I said, there's a presidential related zombie map in that game. But I got on there. I was nostalgic through all the menus and I get into the game and it was a hacked lobby. Have you ever been in a hacked lobby? No. So all these old Call of Duty games that are still live, right? Uh, they stopped supporting them with like security updates, right? And so people have realized this and the people who still play it or who want to mess around or whatever, it's you can like hack these lobbies, right? And so basically you can, whoever is doing that can make crazy things happen. All kinds of things. Various things from like you get in the game and you lose, you go back to level zero and lose everything you have. And (laughs) and that's your whole account is gone, right? Or the opposite is true where you get in a lobby and immediately as soon as you start the game, you you have everything. Everything's unlocked, max level, right? And that's that's your account. Um, But the specific one I got in was uh, you jumped like a hundred feet in the air every time you jumped, right? (laughs) And it was, and it was annoying and I didn't get to play the game for real but I still probably played that game for like an hour right because it was just kind of fascinating and everyone's jumping around and but but hacking is a big problem in old Call of Duty games but like hacking and cheating didn't just start with online games it's kind of been around for a very very long time it can be fun but it can also be bad yeah it can be really fun but it can in the long run it's it's almost always not a good thing right so how long has cheating 
been in gaming? That's a good question, right? The answer is basically from the very beginning, right? And it started, how it practically started was in the 80s, in the early 80s, so not at the very beginning, right? But like developers started coding in like button combos that would be a cheat. So when they were developing, they didn't have to play through the entire game to get to the point they were messing with. They could just skip ahead levels or whatever, right? And so a a bunch of games have like well-known, like they're built in, right? You just... you left, right, start, select, A, B, and then it does this thing, right? Yep. And, and so those were a lot of times built in. But the but sometimes uh, it wasn't like that, right? There's That's where, when it comes to hacking, like in a Call of Duty game, it usually requires third-party software or sometimes even third-party hardware on your console. But with hacking back in the day, it was a lot easier, right? Because games weren't online. There was no checking in with a server. It was just kind of, you bought the game, you had it, right? And so from how I understand a game is stored in the memory, right, of the system. And that's what it runs off. You put the disc in, it points you to the memory, the memory does the game things, right? Well, there is this thing called a game shark. Have you ever have you ever used a game shark? I can go grab my game shark. You have one, see? So these are fascinating. And, and I never, as a kid, I didn't understand what it was. Uh, they called them like game enhancers. I can't remember if I had, uh, I don't, I actually don't know that I ever had one, um, but my friends had them and I, we would play with them. And they're pretty cool, right? Because yeah. it's like all these like there's preloaded cheats for every type of game and and how those work right is like which you probably already know basically you put it in it basically will like alter the saved code of of the game it doesn't cha- it doesn't add or take away from the game it just can basically tricks your console into doing something right so you can like give yourself unlimited lives or unlimited power-ups or whatever and i remember doing stuff like that in like metal gear solid on playstation you could get unlimited ammo whatever right yeah and so that's kind of like how cheating uh it doesn't really hurt anybody. It's fun. And and it, it's kind of a weird gray area, right? Where it's like not a big deal to do because these people aren't stealing game data. They're just adding to it and making it kind of more fun, right? right. You're not going to jail because you cheated in a video game. No, because you're not. It's just for fun for you. You're sitting at home alone playing a, a game where you have unlimited lives, which if you think about it, isn't fun, but it, but it is. You know what I mean? Like it is fun. And so I did that many times in my life. And so those, those were very interesting. But I was introduced to something... Uh, because of my like loose interest in sp- the speedrunning community, okay, I was introduced to this thing called a credit warp. Do you know what this is? No. Okay. So a credit warp in Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo is basically getting... You can get to the credits of the game without actually playing the game. And how that works is a technique called ACE Arbitrary Code Execution used in Super Mario Brothers, right? Which tricks your system into thinking that the game's over when the game's not over. And this is kind of fascinating to me because it's like the original way of hacking, except it wasn't hacking because you weren't actually changing anything. And this can be completely done with zero alterations to any kind of hardware or software. It's just done, right? And you know about this probably because you're you're relatively, you're probably more invested in speed running and, and retro stuff than I am, right? I've tried but failed on this. It's, it's so it's hard. It's very, man. very difficult, right? And so when I saw it, I was super, I fell into this rabbit hole of like speed running Super Mario 64. And then somehow I got this video fed to me through the algorithmic, whatever, you know, however this works, right? And this guy finishes the entire Super Mario Bros. on the first level or whatever, or Super Mario World. And like, the credits just come up. And he was the first guy to do it. I didn't even write his name down. He was the first guy to do it on an actual console. So like with an SNES and a cartridge. But basically, this is like the blind telling the blind. Like I don't actually know how this works. But from my understanding, 
right, to explain it to you is, again, it stores the game code in the memory, right? And it's like back in these days, it's a lot less complex. It's just numbers. And so there's like a list of numbers that will do something in the game. So like, for instance, one line of code will mean take a a life away when you die. So when you die, it'll trigger that code to take a life away. Same thing with this. When you eat a mushroom, it will trigger the code to make make you bigger and give you more health or whatever, right? That's like what that does. And so there's all kinds of lines of code that mean all kinds of different things. And one of them is bring up the credits at the end of the game. And normally that's triggered by beating Beating the the game. game. But there's there's a way to trick it into executing this code without doing that and like that what that entails i read like tutorials i watched videos i will never be able to do it because you have to be literally like pixel perfect but like you like jump on the koopas and you move their shells to certain positions and you ride the yoshi around all while holding certain triggers on the controller and it's like crazy right like in fact some one of the methods uses you have to use two controllers oh wow but only one play like it's just like all these inputs and that somehow leads to writing this piece of code that will trigger the end credit warp, right? And so it's just like, I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't even know that was possible. I don't know how. I looked into how people figured this stuff out. And sometimes it was just through sheer playing and getting lucky and something happening and trying to recreate it. But most of the time, it's like looking into, like from the future, where we live now, looking into stuff from the past and just like deconstructing how it actually functions. But I just could not believe that that's even possible. And, and it, it, people used to think it wasn't possible to do this kind of thing. But it turns out it's not only possible, it's now like it's it's like a category of speed run where like there's like, you know, 100% everything, any percentage exploits used or whatever. It's pretty fascinating. I just didn't know that was even a possibility. It does feel like something that a kid at the schoolyard would say that their uncle that works at Nintendo told them. Right. Like, my uncle who works at Nintendo said, I plug two controllers in and then I claw this one weird and I jump in the Koopa on on it 25 times and then close my eyes and then credit work. And like, and everyone's like, that kid was crazy. And then you grow up thinking, you know, that was the weird kid on the playground. But it's like, that's like a legitimate thing to do. And I just... My dad, my uncle was the janitor and he overheard it. It was true. They were talking about it. Yeah, but and that's the thing where you could try it your whole life with someone's verbal instructions and never get it because it has to be that precise, like pixel to the pixel, right? And you, it's fascinating. I just find it pretty insane that while I'm spending an hour in a Call of Duty lobby jumping 100 feet in the air, there's someone who's figuring out how to beat Super Mario World in under a minute. So Chris, just like you, I also like to keep pretty current in the video game industry, but my things are often a lot more boring and sometimes they are focused on the news, a a quarterly earnings call. For some reason, I can't get excited about finance for my own life, but hearing about a video game company talk about Q3 is somehow interesting to me. So one of the stories that's been coming up kind of in like video game news and business sector in the past year has been about a man named Yuji Naka. So Yuji Naka is probably most famous for being the creator of Sonic the Hedgehog. And there was a team that helped him build it, but he's kind of the guy who takes the most credit for creating Sonic. And he has kind of come on hard times recently, but I I think it's mostly his fault. 
So he was working for publisher Square Enix, and he was making a video game called Balan Wonderworld about two years ago. And it reviewed very poorly, did not go very well. He actually got fired before, right before they released it. And it's kind of ruined his career a bit. But what really ruined his career is that when he was still at Square Enix, he was committing insider trading. He had news about other video games that were going to be announced by Square Enix, and he would buy and sell stock. And basically, he made the equivalent of a million dollars in his tradings. (laughs) And he got found out, and he was arrested twice in the past year for two different instances of the insider trading. And... What I found interesting is when this story has been developing a few months ago, someone mentioned that Yuji Naka had pleaded guilty to the crimes. And I thought that was so strange because everyone in America, you always assume that they're going to plead not guilty or at least no contest. No one's going to admit to doing something wrong. And I thought, here's this guy who knows he did a wrong thing and he's willing to pay the price for it. And that's when I discovered something strange. It turns out that in Japan, trials end in a guilty verdict almost 99.9% of the time. What? Yeah, it's crazy. The numbers came down a little bit in recent years, but it's still like over 99.5%. So went down quite the rabbit hole, as you can imagine. Like, how does this happen? Like, how are they almost all guilty? Like, what does the public feel about this? So naturally, because I learn about this from a video game, I had to play a video game about the Japanese legal system. (laughs) So I played about 70 hours of a lawyer simulator. 70? Yeah. It's like a full trilogy. Sure. Of uh, Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney. Are Hmm. you familiar with that series? It's like a visual novel. There's not a lot of like... There's not a ton of gameplay. It's a lot of reading text and making decisions. Uh, But you play as Phoenix Wright, who is a defense attorney straight out of law school. And he always has the odds stacked against him in trials. So, for example, there was one trial where his friend was framed for murder. And she was, like, in a locked room with the victim. And they found a gun with her fingerprints on it that shot the guy. And then, like, an investigative journalist broke into the room a few minutes later, and there's a picture of her with blood all over her shirt. But, like, you talk to your friend, and she says, like, I didn't do this. I promise I didn't do this. And Phoenix just kind of says, okay, I guess we'll figure it out. (laughs) And somehow, in all of these situations, he finds a way to prove, like, his clients that they are not guilty. And they are all actually not guilty, and they were just framed. So... The game's a bit bizarre. It's, I mean, it, it's kind of anime in a way, uh, I, I would say. And Phoenix also goes up against all of these prosecutors in the game. And they all have very big egos. And specifically, they all care about their records, their perfect records of guilty verdicts. Hmm. So you'll meet one of the guys named Miles Edgeworth, and he'll talk about how he's never lost a case. He's always gotten a guilty. And then, like, in your first case... You deliver a guilty verdict. uh, uh, You deliver a not guilty verdict, and then you beat him again in the next case, Mm. and in the next case, and this like destroys these guys. Eventually, well, there's a a boss in one of the games who went his 40 year career all guilty verdicts, and you deliver the first one to him, 
And there are rumors that go around the game about these prosecutors, about how they will stop at nothing to get that verdict. They will forge evidence. They will coach a witness on what to say and what not to say. They will just bribe the judge in the courtroom. Like they'll just right in front of you, bribe the judge. And the judge is like kind of cool with it. And they just won't stop at anything for this. So this sounds just like a dumb video game, right? Like there's no way any of this is true. But it actually mostly is. No way. Yeah. So the games were built to be a commentary on the problems with the Japanese legal system. Mm. So obviously some parts are exaggerated, but a lot of it is rooted in truth. And it turns out that in Japan, most of the cases are kind of, they're more of a formality where the, the judge is barely even looking at the evidence. The prosecutor doesn't have to share the evidence with everyone ahead of time. Like in America, you mm-hmm. actually have to share it with everybody. Everyone knows what's coming up. He'll just hide something until the last minute. Maybe he forged it. And it looks very incriminating. Also, there aren't juries in Japan. Like So instead of the jury delivering the verdict, it's, just it's, the, judge. it's the judge. Which a lot of people, when they play Phoenix right, they're really confused about. Why They're like, why is this judge handing down the verdict? And it's because that's not how their legal system is. And uh, just like with Phoenix's clients... The assumption is that you are guilty until proven innocent Hmm. instead of innocent until proven guilty. There's actually a high profile case that's kind of been going on the last couple of years where like one of the executives at at Nissan was being investigated for some sort of financial issues. And because he was a foreigner in Japan, he was worried about not being treated well and he was worried about like the legal system basically finding every way to make him guilty. So he sneaks out of the country on a plane in like a musical instrument case or something. (laughs) And there was a press conference recently where Japan's minister of justice uh, says that she messed up and said the wrong thing. But she says like, this guy's going to have to prove his innocence. So the government normally never admits that they're guilty until proven innocent. But one of their highest judge people just like admitted it in a press conference. So it's, it's like known by the whole country and the whole world, but they don't like say that's how it's ran. Yeah. Like if you read all of their constitutions and documents and stuff, it would, it probably wouldn't be that different than what you read with America. But if you ask anybody who knows about their culture, they'll say that's not. Well, and the numbers, 99 point, you know, something percent. That's, that's incriminating. (laughs) Absolutely. So I had to turn to somebody who knew more about this than me. Uh, someone who understood Japanese culture. And it turns out the guy is also sort of my distant relative. It was, it was quite the revelation. So I'm talking about Van Gessel and he has received medals from the Japanese emperor for creating mutual understanding between Japan and America. It's crazy. So I was watching a movie, I go with some friends to the Grandview Cinema Club about once a month. I think I've mentioned it to you off air Mm -hmm. before. And we were watching a movie called Silence. It was a Martin Scorsese movie from 2016. And it's about Portuguese missionaries to Japan in the 1600s and how Christianity was outlawed in Japan and how the Japanese government would stop at nothing to murder these missionaries. And our our group was watching this, and the next day I was reading the Wikipedia page, and I see at the bottom of the page that 
someone with my last name helped consult on this movie. And then I go to his Wikipedia page and I realize, like, I got to talk to this guy. He's going to be able to help me out with all my questions about Japan. So I reached out to him and we talked for a few hours and I won't bore you with the genealogy we talked about, but I do want to impart some of his wisdom to you about how we got to this place with the guilty verdicts. So Van told me about Japan's long history with trying to prevent crime. And some of it actually kind of came up in the movie. Hundreds of years ago, during the Edo period in Japan, the military government, which was known as the Tokugawa Shogunate, would divide everybody up in Japan into groups of five households. And these were called Gonin Gumi. And essentially, you're responsible for any of the crimes committed by someone who's in your Gonin Gumi. So if, say, one of my neighbors is part of my Gonin Gumi, and he goes and murders somebody, then unless, like, if there's if he is suspected of that crime and he's denying it, but I know something and I know that it's true that he killed the person, I have to basically snitch on him or I will get murdered too. Oh. So this creates a culture in Japan where you are, you're thinking about the, the greater good of your group, and it also creates the idea that it doesn't necessarily matter if that person committed the crime, but someone has to answer for this. So in the same way with the modern day guilty verdict, you got to imagine some of these people are innocent. Yeah. But someone had to answer for this crime. The police couldn't figure out who it was. This person seems kind of suspicious. We need to keep society happy and give them uh, a scapegoat, I guess. So as Japan starts to open up to the rest of the world in the 1800s, they took a lot of influence from existing governments and started to adjust their judicial system. And they modeled their system a lot after how Germany handles theirs. And they created an inquisitorial legal system, which I alluded to a little bit earlier, because in an inquisitorial system, there are two parties. You have the state and the defendant. So the state is the judge and prosecutor, and the defendant is, you know, the, per the, the defendant and their lawyer, essentially. Mm -hmm. No jury. So the judge and the prosecutor are used to being on the same side, historically. And obviously, everyone who served that way is long dead now. But there's a history of the judge and prosecutor are buddies, and they're the ones working together against the defendant. So even after World War II, when the government changes to what's called an adversarial legal system, where it's where the judge is supposed to be a neutral party and the defendant and the prosecution are going against each other, the judge isn't always playing a referee like they do in American courts. They're often very biased. So the police are also involved in this process as well, where they participate in something that's informally called hostage justice, where they will deny bail, they will get someone to make a false confession, they'll just interrogate them until they give up because they just want the interrogation to stop because mm -hmm. it's been lasting for days, and they were told they might get off easy if they confess. So even if they didn't do it, they just want it to end, and then they don't actually get off easy, oftentimes. So the prosecutors are very picky with their cases as well, where part of what leads to the guilty verdict is that ego we talked about. Yeah. All of these prosecutors in real life, they don't want to ruin the record. So they only take cases that are open and shut super easy, but sometimes they will just make it easier 
by talking to a police officer, getting them to, to make the confession, forging the evidence. And all of these, these things put together result in that 99.9% guilty rate. So while, like I mentioned earlier, it's not getting much better, but I find it so fascinating that this low-budget, silly, visual novel video game, just for 20 years now, they're making a million of these games, they have been standing in defiance of the problems with the Japanese legal system, and it was enough to make me care about politics in a country I don't even live in. Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. If you have a factoid or want to just share something fun with us, send us an email at what's yours at factoidpodcast.com. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms or on our website, factoidpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks.